BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You have to be a good neighbor. You have to be a good neighbor. Otherwise, I'm going to be up your butt every day. This Bendrovsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview, is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Bendrovsky Show as I speak. It is Thursday, February 25th, 2021. And as I like to do with a bonus show, I'll read you just a sample headline. It's in the newspaper. I open up my bright one, my Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. Lightfoot heard using profanity and hot mic. Oh, my goodness. Some things never change. The mayor drops the F-bomb. That voice we heard at the outset, of course, was Alderman Tom Tunney, one of our favorite bits. Uh, Alderman Tom Tunney of the 44th Ward. Aldermen, mayors, I got the city on my mind, I got aldermen on my mind, and that's just a perfect way to introduce uh, my distinguished guests, as I do with all bonus shows. I ask my distinguished guests to introduce himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thanks very much, Ben. I am Matt Martin. I'm the alder person of the 47th Ward, uh, where a number of notable people live, including yourself. That is correct. Uh, and as I always point out, I'm a little, I always feel a little sheepish uh, with Matt Martin. He knows what's coming. I did not vote for him in the first go around. Okay. And he is so nice and benevolent. If he were like some politicians in town, he would never forgive me for that. But I voted for someone who I knew for a, a long time. But in the runoff, I voted for Matt Martin. So there, Matt, I, uh, every time you say that, I go, oh, God, I didn't vote for him in the first go. That's quite all right. We had had about a dozen people run, most of them really, really strong candidates with tremendous community ties. So I had a lot of folks say, we can't go wrong with about six or eight of you. And I continue to feel that way. A lot of them are, are continue to be friends of mine. So we are all good. Well, and before we get started, you have a fundraiser coming. I want to tell folks a little bit about your fundraiser, uh, get the information out. Uh, you're one of the more progressive aldermen uh, in the city of Chicago. I'm glad to say you are my alderman. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, just let's get that information out of the way and let's get down to the business. Sure. So it is going to be next Thursday, a week from today, March 4th, 6 p.m. It's going to be about an hour. Um, We want to make sure we're spotlighting a lot of our great local institutions. So uh, we're going to have a performer, a jazz pianist from Old Town School of Folk Music, a terrific ward institution, perform at the outset. We're going to do some trivia where prizes will come from uh, several of our tremendous local businesses. I'll obviously give folks an update about what's been keeping me busy and our priorities. So if folks are interested and available um, to support in any way they feel comfortable, you can go on Twitter, Facebook, Matt Martin Shy is the handle um, and reach out to us at info at matt47.com if you've got any questions. All right. Very good. Uh, all right, Matt, let's get down to business here. Uh, the headline I read was actually had to do with yesterday's uh, meeting 
uh, where Alderman Lightfoot uh, dropped the F-bomb right after a Rosa, uh, Alderwoman uh, Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez was speaking. By the way, uh, Alderwoman Ro- Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez was my guest earlier today on the show. Uh, and so I want to ask you about mayoral relations with uh, uh, progressive or lefty aldermen. I generally call them lefties, not progressives, but whatever. Um, I, I sense, and I'm putting this mildly, Matt, a certain tension between uh, Mayor Lightfoot and Alderman of the leftist persuasion. And I just want to ask you about this. How do you, how has your relationship been with the mayor? You are of the leftist persuasion. Uh, how has your relationship been with the mayor and how have you been able to avoid some sort of more uh, contentious interactions with him? Go ahead. So I think I have a fine relationship with the mayor. It's constructive. Um, it's it's not especially close, and that's fine. Um, I've got a very good working relationship with a number of folks in her office, as well as department commissioners. So if I've got uh, a housing issue, I might call Maurice Cox, DPD, Maurice Navarro at DOH before I would call Mayor Lightfoot, and I think that that's absolutely fine. I also know that a lot of her priorities um, concern issues and parts of uh, the city that aren't the 47th word. I think that's appropriate, right? If we're thinking about what we're going to do about investment in communities along the south and west sides, like I don't need as much time with the mayor as other colleagues, and more importantly, other community groups and neighbors in those places. So I feel like, look, if I need to pick up the phone, I can do that. But a lot of the priorities that I have for our community and even our city um, are oftentimes best directed to folks who work with or for the mayor. And I think that's fine. I'll give you a classic example. You voted against the mayor's budget. Uh, You haven't been on the show in a while. So this happened uh, November, December, November, I guess it would have been. You voted against the, uh, the mayor's budget. When you cast that vote, uh, was there any a blowback from the mayor's office, or they just allow you to cast your vote as you saw fit? Well, so I definitely had a long series of conversations with various folks in the mayor's office, as well as my colleagues, and then community groups in and around our, our ward. So when I was making that decision, uh, uh, probably the single biggest component of the decision to vote no concerned our continued reliance on property taxes, in particular, the idea that we would tie property tax increases to the consumer price index. So the possibility that you'd have property taxes every year um, uh, indefinitely. And look, I, I don't think it's appropriate for us to shy away from hard decisions and we're going to have a series of them when it comes to our budgets. But we also need to make sure, especially for someone like me who ran recently. And so I, a lot of the things that I'm asked to vote on are things that I commented on on a daily basis when I was campaigning. A lot of it is progressive revenue because uh, while there is some wealth in our ward, it's not a monolith. There are a lot of folks who are working class, a lot of folks who are struggling even more than that. And so if you rent or you own, you're feeling those property tax increases. So I felt it was critical for me to be able to go back to voters if I were to have supported that part of the budget to say, I think we've exhausted every viable option. Um, and I'm telling you, this is, this is, in my opinion, the best we can do. I didn't feel I could say that to our community. Um, and, and I think that there was a mutual understanding in terms of the administration and my perspective and clearly um, disagreement. But I, I, I tried in, in my, my public comments to make those disagreements respectful, um, to make sure that 
there was as much clarity as there could be around those disagreements. And then, look, we, we have to continue working with one another. That's the case with my colleagues. That's the case with commissioners. That's the case with residents. And so I really try to keep that in mind as, as much as I can as, as we have contentious conversations around what to do with really big documents and decisions like our budgets, which should reflect our values. I think everyone agrees we have a ways to go. Um, and my hope is that we can see a lot of those lessons learned process and substance and have the coming budget be something um, that, 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 that we can see broader support around. All right. Well, let's get into it. Since you mentioned budget, let's take a deep dive in the budget. Been talking a lot on this show, uh, Matt, and I just wrote a column about it for the reader about the mayor, uh, this decision to spend 281 million, 281.5, I think is the uh, closer uh, item number uh, on police. Uh, that was money that came from the federal government for COVID relief. Uh, and uh, many of uh, my guests have commented on this, been critical of it. What was your uh, thoughts about this when uh, you discovered that $281 million, $281.5 million had been spent on the police? Incredibly concerned. Incredibly concerned. We had, from the CARES Act, about $1.13 billion. So that amount you mentioned, uh, 281.5, that's about a quarter of everything we got from the federal government for that. And then the vast majority of the personnel-related expenses um, were on the police department. And look, like, Obviously, there's some folks in, in our city who are very critical of the police department. There's some who are very supportive. There's a, a continuum between those, and I get it. Um, but when you look at those precious funds, especially at a time when we were really hurting from a financial standpoint, and not just the city's coffers, more importantly, folks who were getting priced out of their homes. I mean, they lost their income. They were worried about um, not being able to pay rent or mortgage. Obviously, our small businesses struggling, um, including employees who saw a significant drop of income or lost job altogether. Um, and the list goes on. And and to say, okay, we're spending those precious dollars, 281 million of them on a portion on overtime, but really a lot of it was wellness checks as well as security at the McCormick Center, at testing locations at the airports. And I'm thinking, how can that be the case? And if you do the math, you say about 16,000 uh, uh, wellness checks is, is what the budget office <laughs> told us this week. So you do the math, okay, like 10 weeks, seven days a week, 22 districts, and you're like, how many is that per district? Like 12 a day, 14, 15? It's really not that that much. And then same with these other entities, like the airports, well, they have security. They already have CPD officers. They have airport personnel, fire departments there, OEMC is there. Like, is that the highest and best use of those critical funds? And I, I, like a lot of my colleagues, I have real concerns with um, the decisions that were made there, but look, they were made and we'll continue to advocate for more, um, more transparency around not only that, but also going forward as we continue to spend funds that we get from the federal government, we, we can't afford to have, I think, a, a, a replay in terms of what happened last year. All right. Well, let me uh, give you my theory and uh, get your response to it. Uh, my theory is that, of course, uh, those numbers were fictitious that the mayor's office came with about what the police were doing with wellness checks. In fact, police were 
doing what police do. Uh, but the mayor needed to figure out some way uh, to pay to fill that hole in the budget. And so she did what mayors have done for as long as I can remember. Mayors like Mayor Rahm and Mayor Daly, baby Daly and daddy Daly. Uh, who invented this game. You take from Peter, you pay Paul. You got money in this pot, you move it to that pot because you have a, uh, you have a pot to fill, if you uh, will. And this is just uh, the budget games that mayors play. And then when they get called out on it, they, they, they make the budget chief, whoever it is, it's, you know, bureaucrats come and go, go before the city council and say, well, you know, uh, <laughs> really what these police officers were doing, were doing COVID checks at O'Hare. Uh, that's my very skeptical, Ben's been around Chicago a long time interpretation of what went down. What's your response to that? I, I think anytime someone's skeptical in the way the government in the state of Illinois or the city of Chicago operates, that's it's 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 almost impossible to dismiss that, right? We have a well-earned reputation. I think yesterday or today we just heard from some publication we are yet again at the top of the list of the most corrupt cities in the U.S. So look, that's a reality, and and I also understand. Look, I've I, I work with some folks in the mayor's office when it comes to budget issues. I think they're. They're doing their best, but at the end of the day, these are really challenging decisions. And if what you are describing was ultimately the case, then um, it's it's up for my colleagues and I to really drill down and going forward, make sure we get more transparency, but also that we, um, I think, step up a little bit more and provide the sort of oversight, but also planning, like proactive policy planning that the city needs from a legislative body, right? We we, we have a lot of work to do at the local level that's never going to go away, but those two are intertwined, right? If someone's calling my office saying, I'm really concerned about how I'm going to pay rent, I'm really concerned about how I'm going to afford food going forward. Hey, my kid's doing remote learning. We're struggling to get access to, um, to the internet, to a new device, um, that's what I'm keeping in mind. And I get that. Yeah, we did um, city council the previous year, passed a budget that locked in a significant amount of amount of money for the police department. Sure. Like that is a reality, but we're in a pandemic and we have a series of hard choices to make. Uh, I'm not sure that we made the right one in this situation, but look, we got to learn, we got to move forward. And it's something not just for me, but all my colleagues in the mayor, like our, our voters, our residents will take that into account as they continue to work with us and then ultimately see if we're up to the job come 2023. Uh, I will now defend the mayor. I've been very critical of her lately. I've been having my troubles with some of her policies, but I'm going to defend her uh, at this, at this juncture. You start up by saying that uh, one of the reasons you voted against uh, the, um, the budget uh, last go around because of the hikes and property taxes. And thank you for saying that. I'm one of those voters in the 47th, somehow or other, I wound up in the 47th ward uh, it's, I've been here since 1985, and it's a different ward now, Matt, than it was when I first moved here. But you're right. Oh, my goodness. Property taxes go up, 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 and it's really less and less affordable all the time. And so I appreciate you taking that stand. But the mayor pointed out uh, it, when, the, when there was criticism about spending the $281.5 million of federal dollars on police is that, oh, well, what's your alternative? Raise the property taxes? I don't think you want that. So thank you very much, Chicago. You're welcome, Chicago, uh, for avoiding a property tax hike. Uh, do you, what's your response to that? Do you buy that notion that it's either or, it's either a property tax hike uh, or spending the, the federal dollars on the cops? 
Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Look, I think we need to figure out, first of all, like exactly how those funds were spent. And if, if it was absolutely above board, you know, we'll have folks who will take a look at that to double and triple check. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's, it's constructive to look at things in a vacuum to say like one event and then move on to the next event. You need to look at it more broadly. And so if we pass a budget that is not adequately aligned with our values and understanding that COVID, no one really expected that to happen, certainly to the degree that it did, right? That's a, a once in a century sort of incident. Um, you don't plan around that. You shouldn't plan around that. But still, okay, like going forward, we'll know if we, if, as we continue to pass budgets that there will be unforeseen events arise that we will need to account for. And so I think it's important for us to look at it, not just in terms of the decisions that were made in March, April, and May of last year in 2020, but also the budget before that. And then, well, what, what lessons did we learn in terms of, did we reallocate resources within the budget to uh, within departments to better reflect our values and our needs I'm not sure that we did that um, this most recent go around after those expenditures were made, right? And when we locked in the budget in November of 2020. So um, I think a lot of this was a situation of our own making, of the administration's making. Um, so I, I don't know that it is that um, either or uh, proposition that you just framed it as. Yeah. Matt, why don't you uh, give some suggestions of other forms of revenue that the city uh, might look forward, uh, might look to, uh, to break us away, uh, wean us, if you will, of our addiction to the property tax? What other forms of revenue are there? So there, there are a number that I and some of my progressive colleagues are really focused on. But to be clear, it's not like there's this huge well of money, especially beyond the fair tax. And I'm, I'm heartened to hear uh, Speaker Welch say earlier today that we we can't just move on from that without thinking if, if it's appropriate to take uh, a, a second close look at that, especially if there are lessons learned that we think could affect the ultimate outcome. But that said, look, like we're talking about a series of options that aren't in the aggregate ideal, but are they better than the status quo? Are they better than property tax increases? Are they better than hiking up fines and fees and tickets? Um, so I think it's important to keep that in mind. So one that we've talked about consistently as progressives is making the real estate transfer tax more progressive. Now, right now, given the fact that downtown isn't exactly booming the way that it was several years ago, that's not necessarily going to bring in the amount of money that folks were saying a year or two ago, but hopefully we'll see a rebound. And obviously there are sales outside of the downtown area, but the idea being that if you're selling a building for 5 million, 10 million, $15 million, that the price, the percentage that you should pay is more than if you sold your home for, Two hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. That that makes sense. That's progressive, right? There's broad support around that. Second, payment in lieu of taxes. Pilot. It's an acronym. It's a fancy way of just saying, look, if you're a nonprofit institution and you're not paying property taxes on account of that status, let's make sure that you're kicking in because you certainly are using a lot of city resources. So if you're a big um, college or university, Boston, for example, does this. A lot of other East Coast schools, because Boston, boy, do they have a lot of colleges and universities. We say, hey, we. we we're going to ask you to kick in five, 10, $15 million a year, depending on the, the size of your entity, especially given your endowments, because look, you clearly have the capacity to kick in, to contribute, to, to keep our city as strong as possible. Um, that makes a lot of sense. 
Moving beyond that, I think it's some some especially challenging choices. You can say, look, the, the city should get a larger share of the income tax that we all pay to the state. There's some zero-sum aspect to that in terms of is the state going to give that away to us? And if so, what are we going to do? So that's challenging, but you hear that discussed. I think a big one is expanding the, the sales tax base to include certain services, especially high-end ones. That's you're in for a fight because that means that you're going to have lobbyists descend on Springfield when the time comes, but that's a really big one. So if you talk for, to someone like Ralph Martiri at the Senate for tax and budget accountability, that's, that's a really big one. And then finally, I would raise ideas like a carbon tax, which the city of Boulder is using, which is, are there ways in which we can nudge in a slight way folks to change their habits, especially larger um, buildings, industry, to move away from practices that are so reliant on carbon and instead relying more on renewable resources. Um, because if we're going to be in a climate emergency, which is the case right now, we need to act like it. And I, I do think that there are ways in which we need to readjust how we price certain things with environmental sustainability in mind. These are all great ideas, Matt. And one of the uh, frustrating thing, as I listen to your recitation of them, is to realize that there's no active movement by the powers that be in the city of Chicago to enact any of them. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, I was, I'm, I was dutifully writing down all your ideas, and 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 you didn't mention uh, a city income tax. I think you flirted with that notion when you were running for alderman. Uh, you took some heat from your opponent who probably knew better uh, than to deliver that heat, but we'll put that aside. That's old news. Um, it take me a while to get over that one, Matt. But none of these proposals are out there right now. Do you find that frustrating that there's these progressive approaches to our challenges that we face, and yet they're not being discussed by the powers that be in the city of Chicago? So in fairness, I think a lot of the powers that be – We'll talk about that. They will bring that up. And especially the real estate transfer tax, RET for short, and pilot, those get discussed a lot, um, and they get discussed annually. But to your point, I do share your frustration that we're not in a place where we can say we have adopted that, that we do have those sorts of more progressive revenue options that can reduce our reliance on more regressive things like property taxes and fines and fees. So it's really, look, like I'm, I'm, I'm an elected official. I have agency. I'm in a position of leadership. So part of the challenge is for me and a number of my colleagues to be more effective in bringing those policies um, to the forefront of the conversation and making them a reality. Um, they're challenging, right? Like the sales tax expansion, anyone who's part of an industry that would stand to see taxes go up because it's a service and, and it would get uh, uh, in brought in within the sales tax framework, you know, they're going to lobby and then that makes it challenging. You know, like if, if we make exceptions for everybody, then what are you left with? But at the end of the day, the idea is you got to keep equity in mind and figure out what the appropriate balance is. You're never going to be able to keep everybody happy. Um, and you, you have to know what, what the core values are that you hold, that your community holds and, and, and make those tough decisions because right now inertia is going to take us to the place of uh, that, that, that no one, wants us to go down. And so best for us to be a little bit more proactive as city lawmakers working with the mayor's office to figure out a more, a more durable path forward. You're right. Those uh, proposals have been discussed by the powers that be, but I just want to point out, usually they're opposing them, <laughs> trying to keep them from being implemented and then threatening to leave Chicago if they get implemented, you know, and, and that brings me, uh, I have to ask you about this 
Um, I didn't mention this in our pre-show planning prep, but I'm going to ask about it anyway. A little improv here, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, full page ad in uh, today's Chicago Sun Times. It may have been in the Tribune. I didn't see it as well. From the business community, business leaders of Chicago, uh, dear Mayor Lightfoot. I don't know if you saw this or heard about it, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, essentially, first of all, they applaud her for the work she's done. So it sort of reads almost as an endorsement, an early endorsement of Mayor Lori Lightfoot from about 60 to 70 of the most prominent business leaders in the city of Chicago. And they close by saying, we love Chicago. We are here to stay and we're committed to contributing to the task at hand. I applauded them for saying that, but I just, I had a smile because it just seems like the business community, the downtown business community is always making the threat of leaving Chicago. If you tax, I've heard this, the financial transaction tax, this is long before you got elected. If you impose a financial transaction tax, we're leaving Chicago. We're going to Indiana. <laughs> They're going to go to Gary. You know what I mean? They're always threatening to leave Chicago. So I, I, I applaud them for at least putting that sentence in there that we're not going to leave Chicago. But um, I'm just wondering if they are, what, committed to any of those proposals that you suggested. Do you have the sense, Matt, that you would get support from anyone in corporate Chicago uh, if you tried to implement any of those proposals that you put out there? Um, I do think that we would get support from some, um, especially depending on what the alternatives are, right? But at the end of the day, uh, there's no single constituency, particularly small constituencies like corporate CEOs that should be dictating what the policy is for the city, right? Um, We need to make sure that that we really expand the way in which democracy operates in practice. And so if anybody, anybody says, I, I, I have been in Chicago, I've put down roots, I feel like I'm contributing and I wanna keep it that way. Well, other than a few exceptions that aren't even worth getting into, I'd welcome that, right? Anyone who wants to stay in our community and continue contributing in a way that's constructive, by all means. Um, but just because uh, you earn a lot of money and make a lot of decisions on behalf of larger entities doesn't uh, entitle you to um, make decisions for the rest of us. Um, so it's, you know, that, that it's fine that they said that. Um, I'm sure that there are lots of different reasons that different ones had for signing on. But at the end of the day, I, I see that and say, okay, what's next? Yeah, what's next? That's a good. That's good. Uh, what is next, guys? Uh, all right, let's uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the schools, and then we'll close with the police. We'll start with the schools. Uh, the uh, elementary schools just uh, reopened uh, for for uh, children, parents who want to go there, uh, brave the pandemic. Uh, what's sort of the response, reaction of folks in your community uh, during the whole? last six months of this pandemic when their kids were at home were they eager to reopen the schools and have their kids go back go ahead i would say it in many ways mirrors what you saw throughout the city which was it's it's it, everyone is frustrated everyone wants to be back as quickly as it is safe to do so and as they feel it's safe and that means different things to different people um if you're by yourself and you're young um, and you're living with a child, that might 
make for a different set of considerations than if you have several elderly individuals or, or individuals who are immunocompromised. Um, so like, what's the tolerable level of risk? I think that in a lot of ways is something that people should have the opportunity to make decisions uh, for themselves and, and their loved ones and their children. And so what I've been really focused on, and especially talking with, with residents is what are your concerns? Like what are the sorts of things that are making you anxious, whether you're a family, a student, an educator, an administrator, um, about the reopenings. And so when it became clear, this isn't as much the case right now, but a few weeks ago, a few months ago, accommodations weren't getting acted on um, in a timely fashion. So folks who had requested accommodations to essentially work from home because they felt um, it wouldn't be adequately safe for them to be at school, um, well, those weren't getting responded to in a timely fashion. So we worked um, in a number of cases to help that out, obviously making sure that there was more transparency around how testing would work, how contact tracing would work, not just for employees of CPS, but also for, for students and for families. There was for a while some a lack of clarity around that. Um, and then finally, we've heard from a lot of families around technology access, uh, both devices, but especially internet. And so those are the sort of things that I'm going to continue watching closely come March 1st, which is when you'll have, if memory serves, uh, K through five, and then the following week, March 8, I think it's uh, sixth through eighth grade will be coming back. So I suspect we'll start to hear more from students and parents around the conditions, just like when teachers started coming back um, just on their own before those pre-K students and cluster students came, we heard a lot from teachers like saying, hey, like here are the actual conditions of the facilities. We need some improvements here. And so, because at the end of the day, like I, I, I let off with, we all have the shared goal of getting back to schools as quickly as it's safe to do so. We know what a lot of those next steps are. Um, I know that there can be a difference of opinion and that's okay, albeit very frustrating given what we ultimately want. We're gonna continue to work through that and um, I, I think we'll all be better because of it. Do you think you could be a good bridge between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union? It seems as though there's absolutely no one going back and forth between the other, what from one entity to the other. And I'm just listening to you talk. Uh, I think you could be an emissary, if you will. Someone's got to uh, play that role. It's such a bizarre, contentious relationship that we're locked into. And I was just wondering if you ever th thought that you could play that role, the back channel guy, you know what I mean? To, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's always helpful to do some power mapping and figure out where your relationships are, what your communication style is, what are, what are the needs of the particular moment? I think all of us on city council, all of us as local elected officials, we're talking about county too, and even some state reps and state senators who represent Chicago, we all have a role to play there. And so while some of us might have better relationships with senior leadership in the administration or senior leadership within CTU, um, I think you saw a lot of that back channeling happening in real time because as a lot of folks saw, look, there's not a ton of love lost right now between 
um, the mayor and certain individuals within CTU leadership. And that's that's not uncommon, right? That's that's a political reality across the country, as well as our recent history in Chicago, that were there were lots of conversations being had because look, if at the end of the day they couldn't work together, we wouldn't have been able to reach a reopening agreement, which is what we did after a lot of hard tense <laughs> conversations and negotiations. So I think as much as it can be frustrating and exhausting for folks in the public to see uh, the fight happening in the very public way that it has been. Um, they should also know that, that, that a great many of us are trying to have conversations publicly and privately that reflect what we're hearing from our residents. All right. Well, maybe you already played that role. That was just your uh, nice way of saying, yeah, I played it already. Ben, don't give me any more ideas. I thought it, it was very frustrating uh, and I couldn't understand it. And Matt, you, uh, you know, I'm a big basketball fan. And I just do not understand how it is that the NBA could have the head of its union, Chris Paul, meet with just privately with the leaders. All right, let's let's talk about the parameters of what we're going to have to do. Okay, and we're all in this together. You get what I'm saying? And, Mm -hmm. And as opposed to Chicago, where they lock them in a room with the guy from HR and a bunch of lawyers and grill them for 80 meetings <laughs> till they break. And that's how you do it in Chicago. We are so weird, Matt, in my humble opinion, which is like these contentious fights that we have uh, between these power structures. And it's considered a sign of weakness if you reach out to somebody. It's considered a sign of weakness if you apologize to an alderman after you swore right after she spoke. You get what I'm saying? It's like the Chicago mentality. I've been living in this city from 81, Matt Martin, and I still don't understand why we're locked in to these roles that we have. Help me out on this one. Oh, man. Well, um, I don't have it figured out. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how unique that is to Chicago. I mean, big city politics, you got to have sharp elbows for it, right? There are a lot of people who have things that they want to accomplish. Um, and some of it's like a little bit more personal related in terms of political, um, uh, political aspirations. A lot of it's just based on what they want to accomplish, get done. A lot of it's like interrelated. So I think that's, there's an uncomfortable aspect to having folks who are going to really fight vociferously on your behalf, which is sometimes that fight gets dragged out into public and, and, and look, I guess one way to keep it, keep perspective is we just had the city council meeting yesterday where we spent the better part of one of the many hours we were meeting, uh, lauding Karen Lewis. And if one thinks back to 2011 and 2012 and the strike then, and the really contentious relationship that she had specifically with mayor Emanuel at the time, um, there's some analogs to that now, but you know, time and distance, um, being able to see stuff play out. And uh, I think has provided a lot of perspective to folks. And so when you look back and say at the time, well, how come you're talking about things beyond just compensation, right? How dare you talk about the, the, the classroom environment, how large or small class sizes are, access to social workers and case managers and nurses. You know, and it's for, at, a, at a time that was just like the thrill, like, don't talk about that. That's not what we bargain over. But, but she and others helped bring that to the forefront and normalize those sorts of conversations. And as you know, just as well as I in the 47th Ward, 
those are priorities at our schools, right? Like people really work to make sure our class sizes are under 30, if at all possible. They like the fact that we have librarians at our schools. I mean, I think about, um, I won't name names, um, but some of our schools just have really tremendous ones that I've gotten to know both before and then while being in office. And so it's, I, I would encourage folks to, as frustrating as it can be, especially with COVID, right? Like let's not let's you can't overstate what that does to your psyche to your stress levels to have that layered on top of everything but at the end of the day um look you have a lot of folks who are giving their all because they think that it's going to be in service of something bigger than themselves and even when we disagree with them profoundly um there's there's something to be to be lauded um for someone stepping up to do that well, all right, we'll move on from that one. I have a hard time believing that Chicago politics are any tougher than like an NBA power forward. You talk about elbows crashing. I don't know if you're a basketball fan. I love but basketball. There's some, okay, well, there's some <laughs> elbows crashing in the NBA. But somehow or other, the NBA was able to – Chris Paul's like one of the toughest guys I've ever seen play basketball. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, he uh, got it together to meet uh, – come on, Lori Lightfoot. Follow example of Chris Paul. All right, enough enough editorializing for me. Uh, let's uh, close with the police. And um, we watched, uh, I think it was last Friday, lost track of time, Matt, uh, where Chris Telliafaro, the uh, chair of what the police uh, committee for, I can't remember the exact name of the committee, but anyway, the chair of that committee said he was going to postpone uh, debate on uh, the two ordinances proposed, one by CPAC, one by GAPA, uh, to have a civilian oversight uh, committee over the police department. And she's going to be waiting for the mayor to kick in her proposal. What's your uh, position on all this? Do you think they should, we should have delayed the discussion uh, and wait for the mayor? Or do you think they should have acted uh, on the two proposals that are on the table right now? Go ahead. We've we've been working on this issue for for a number of years, including well before I got to council. So this is not a new issue, right? I mean, we're talking about something that's been in the works for decades. Um, Mayor Lightfoot, when she was chair of the Police Accountability Task Force report, um, was one of several people who really underscored the need for that, right? So that was I think that was released in twenty six. Gosh. 2016, I think that report came out. So this is not new. Um, I, I think we've given this enough conversation, to be honest. I think we know what the moving parts are, and it's time for city council to step up and do its job of, of figuring out what is going to be something that can pass with the requisite number of votes. And for reasons I don't need to get into, you actually need 34 folks on city council to approve something um, with an elected component to civilian oversight rather than the bare majority. So a smaller margin for error. But look, we, we, know, we know what we need to do, and I think that should have happened. Um, I think there's been more than enough time for the mayor and the administration working with colleagues and myself and grassroots organizations to get something done. So I think that was, that was, uh, that, 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 that was a mistake. But at the end of the day, that's the past. We're going to move forward. And it's my sincere hope and expectation that by this time next month, we will have passed something that's that's transformational, not just for our city, but for our entire country. We can really be a leading voice when it comes to what police reform looks like, including uh, police community relations, which this sits at the intersection of. Um, 
so look, let, let's just move forward. Let's get this right. People need us to do it. Um, they've, they've been demanding that we do it for a long time. We're very close. Um, I know you'd mentioned at the outset that we've got two organizations, CPAC and GAPA, that are pitching their respective proposals. We're really close, and we're really close shortly before that cancellation notice happened of bringing those coalitions together to support a single version, a single vision of what oversight looks like. So look, at the end of the day, we can, another month won't, won't, won't kill us, but like, let's make sure it's not any longer than that. Uh, amen to that. All right, we'll close with this. We'll move out of Chicago, get your thoughts about the direction of uh, progressive or democratic politics uh, in general. The uh, state of Illinois has a, uh, well, as a new Speaker of the House, you already alluded to uh, Chris Welch, but it also will have a new chairman of the Democratic Party. Uh, and though aldermen uh, run as uh, in nonpartisan fashion, you are obviously a Democrat. Um, so what are your ideas? What are your thoughts about where the Democrats should go moving forward? Michael Madigan has left. Uh, Robin Kelly and uh, what are your colleague, Michelle Harris, are contending uh, to re- for the, the honor to replace him. What's your sense, not picking one over the other, but what's your sense of where the Democratic Party should go moving forward? I think a a big piece of it needs to be um, taking a page out of the playbook of Stacey Abrams and the terrific work that she and her colleagues were able to bring to Georgia. I'm not saying let's replicate that perfectly because every every state is has its own unique components. But I want to make sure that we're not. we're not getting complacent in terms of looking at Illinois generally as a blue state. Um, it wasn't too long ago that it, it was a purple state. And I mean, as recently as 2010, we had a Republican Senator, right? So if you have the right or depending on your perspective, wrong sort of year come up, you can have a Republican in statewide office, Bruce Rauner, obviously more recently than that even. Um, so I want to make sure we have, not just a, a person, but a vision that a lot of people can get behind that looks beyond Chicago and even Cook County to what um, bold transformational change looks like. And part of that means having some uncomfortable conversations around why the fair tax did not pass. Because while I don't think that that's the only thing that we should be focused on, that was a really signature uh, piece of legislation that could have put us on, on the right sort of footing, it wasn't just a close loss. It was a loss going away. And so I think that should sound a lot of alarm bells in terms of um, let's, let's react properly. We don't, I don't, we need to look at why that failed. Um, but also don't overreact. Don't, don't take lessons from that, that, that um, don't apply to other areas, but still, I think we need to have a real sophistication. A lot of it concerns messaging. A lot of it concerns fundraising. Um, a lot of it concerns technology and how we're engaging with residents more generally, because we need to make sure that we're constantly innovative, constantly um, staying one step ahead of the game, because if memory serves Illinois was one of the few states where Donald Trump actually made some some uh, made up some ground relative to 2016. So I think it's fair to say that there's a little bit of an ascendancy uh, in terms of how conservatives can do and have done in some ways. So I'm I'm hopeful that someone is whoever that is, whether it's Robin or Michelle or someone else, um, wants to be as innovative as possible, forward thinking as possible um, so that we don't have complacency lead us to a really terrible place. Well, uh, 
I'm glad you mentioned the fair tax because I wrote that down as a follow-up. I was very disappointed by the defeat of the fair tax. And, and to your point, it was a trounce. It wasn't close. Uh, we did 60% pro votes to win, and I forget what the fair tax got. I put it out of my mind, Matt Martin. I like, I'm happy to say your ward, our ward, the 47th ward, voted for the fair tax. I can't recall if it made the, I think it made the 60% margin, didn't it? Yeah, it was yeah, over 60%. Definitely, definitely. So that must make you feel good because you ran, essentially ran a campaign on the fair tax, progressive taxes. The higher, the more money you make, the higher, um, you the, the, the greater the rate that you pay at. And you got, as I said, I'll, I'll never get over it. Your opponent chided you for that. Your opponent used against you the very arguments that, the uh, the Republicans used against Governor Pritzker when he proposed with his fair tax. It was very frustrating when I had a seat at an automatic race, and it was even more frustrating when I saw it win. That our those arguments were victorious. So, what do you think? Just like a suggestion you can make as a guy who already ran on this issue and won in a relatively well-to-do ward, which would mean many of the people that voted for you were actually supporting the notion of raising their own taxes. What advice could you give to J.B. Pritzker and the Democrats going forward on this? Go ahead. I think a, a very helpful starting point, and, and I'm not saying that this conversation didn't happen consistently, because obviously there are lots of ways to have these conversations, but I think at bottom, you've got to start from a place of what do folks need? What, what, what are the improvements that would make their communities even stronger than what's the case right now? And so thinking back to my race, a lot of it concerned um, what our schools could benefit from. A lot of it concerned um, spending on social programs like affordable housing, um, helping individuals who are experiencing, say, domestic violence find somewhere else to live. Um, and, and, and the list goes on. And so if you're figuring out what's most important to you, if you had an additional X amount of money, what would you spend that on? And then figure out, okay, how can we use that to inform how we'll talk about what we see being the case as elected officials or, or bureaucrats around what, what, what the needs of our different institutions are? Because sometimes they don't always match up, but oftentimes they do, and we just need to find some recalibration. And so something that I've heard folks say consistently in our community and, and beyond as well is that it wasn't always clear what that money was going to get used for. And so I think um, depending on how long of a campaign it's going to last, because I do hope that we take another hard look at this, um, I think it's winnable to be able to build up the case for why we need to do that. It's, it's not just something that's going to go down into some government coffer to be used or abused in some way that someone isn't going to support. Instead, this is going to, it's going to go to our hospitals. It's going to go to our schools. It's going to go to our roads. It's going to go to ensuring that people who have been working in all of those areas as public sector employees can retire with dignity, just like we hope everyone can retire with dignity. I get that that pension piece is a tricky one to navigate, especially given the state of our pension 
deficits um, in Chicago and Illinois. And a lot of it takes the sort of education that you probably just don't want to do in terms of, well, let's tell you why that deficit is there. It's not because the benefits were so generous. It's because we weren't paying in the way that we were supposed to pay in as they started to accrue. And now we've gotten to a point where the chickens are coming home to roost. That's, that's hard. And I think there's a lot of resentment. There are a lot of folks who say, well, I, I don't have a pension. Um, and I understand where those folks are coming from. But again, shared values. Like if you can start with, don't you agree that government should be helping all of us achieve this and be, and it can do so in a, in, in an efficient way, a more efficient way. Well, then this is, this is one way I think we can do it. This is the best way I think we can do it. And so figuring out how to have those sorts of conversations, um, I think will be critical to hopefully passing it successfully the next time around. I have to tell you, listen to what you said. Uh, I was thinking back to one of the um, <laughs> one of the uh, the most successful, influential uh, ca- uh, commercials that the anti-fair tax people aired, and it, we make fun of it all the time on this show. Uh, but I, I realize it uh, drove a hard blow to the fair tax, and that's the so-called Phyllis commercial, where they got a retiree uh, from the suburbs to say that the fair tax would lead to taxing retirement income, income, including pensions. And so there were pensioners. <laughs> I just like, I can't even get this through my head, Matt. There were pensioners who voted no on the fair tax because of that stupid commercial, because they thought they was going to tax their pensions, either not realizing or not caring that the same forces that financed the airing of that commercial were going to turn around and put all their power and propaganda and all their money and all their resources to an, uh, an, an effort, a campaign to really go after their pensions. I, I find that piece of political jujitsu, Matt Martin, really difficult to take. Uh, did you sense, did you share my sense of frustration at that? Oh, absolutely. And I remember uh having multiple conversations with ward residents. I mean, there was a point where we were targeting seniors after these sort of ads came out and we uh, collectively realized that they were um, having a detrimental impact, right? They were having the impact that the opponents wanted them to have. And so we'd call folks up um, and, and, and we, would, we would talk with them, educate them, ask, answer questions, send them information after the fact if that's what was needed. Generally, like I think of only one time did someone just not they, they they just I couldn't get them there. I couldn't get them to realize that what was being said not only was false, but was being peddled by folks who want to do the sort of thing that you're you're really afraid will happen. And so that's why I think it's important to figure out some lessons learned from what Stacey Abrams had done because part of what she and her colleagues were able to do in Georgia was fundamentally reconstitute the way that organizing occurred in that state. And so we're in a different place. Like we need to figure out what it means to um, I think breathe new life into our organizing apparatus within the democratic party, because you can imagine a situation where if we were perfectly calibrated, and I know that COVID created a lot of complications, we could get out there. You could have all those door knockers, volunteer folks, um, 
doing that, making phone calls, texts, uh, sending postcards, like this multi-layered approach such that you could have multiple touches with each one of those seniors who were hearing that misinformation and were inclined to believe it at the outset. We weren't able to do that, but that's, that's what we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about who's the best person to help lead our party moving forward. But even beyond that, um, what the sort of vision is for that party that will, will hopefully outlast whoever that next leader is going to be. And let me just say that Matt Martin is a lot more diplomatic than I am. My reaction was to shame the voters, which, as every millennial who comes on this show tells me, Matt, is the wrong approach to take. And yet I, I can't help myself. I started shaming voters in the Northwest and the Southwest side. Oh, you geezers. You just voted against your own interests, you dummies. But you're right. Your measured approach is the far more appropriate one. So Democratic leaders, don't listen to me. Listen to Matt Martin on this particular issue and don't go down the shaming path. Uh, I will say this. It's a shame you're not on the show more often. Matt, I'm going to do a better job of reaching out to you. It's been too long since you've been on. So uh, best of luck to you with your fundraiser coming up. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. That's great, Matt Martin. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.